Good morning, my brothers and sisters. How are you today? Oh, it's good to see you. Wow, it's hard to believe that it's only been a week since Easter, right? Easter was last week. It seems already like it was like a month ago already. But you know, we had a great celebration here at the bridge, uh, and we celebrated Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead that gives us the promise of eternal life through faith in him. And yet, at the end of the service last week, I mentioned to you that Jesus taught about an unpardonable sin. He did say that there is a sin that just cannot be forgiven. And I wanted to share that with you today because there's a lot of confusion about what Jesus said. We're going to use Mark's passage beginning in Mark chapter 3, verse 28. The same account is in Matthew. The same account is in Luke. But in Mark 3, beginning in verse 28, Jesus said this, I tell you the truth. Now note that whenever Jesus starts out a statement with, I tell you the truth, he's trying to make a special point. He says, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, I know you're saying, no, no, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible tell us that God will forgive all sin? Yes, it does. Doesn't the Bible tell us that God will bury our sins in the depths of the sea and part them as far as the east is from the west? Yes, it does. But, but don't we say that God will forgive all our trespasses and in fact, he'll remember them no more? Yes, we do. Well, then isn't Mark, and for that matter, Matthew and Luke's passage contradict all of this? Not at all. And that's what I want to talk with you about today. Now, because of my schedule this week, I didn't have time to do something I wanted to do for you. I wanted to make a full set of notes about what I'm going to share with you today. Now, I will do that this week and have them ready for you next week. So feel free to take some notes as, as the Holy Spirit moves you today, but I don't want you to worry about having to get everything down because I'll provide that for you later, okay? I'd rather you really just pay attention to this very important passage and what we're going to learn about it today. It's a very, very serious passage indeed. Now, this passage frightens many, many people. It really does. It's not infrequent that we pastors have someone come up and ask us about this particular teaching of Jesus. And the idea behind it is, have I gone too far for God to forgive me? Have I gone too far in my lifestyle or maybe some episode I had with God? Am I beyond God's forgiveness? Now, this passage, in my experience, frightens the wrong crowd. In my experience, those who should not be frightened of this passage often are, and those who should be frightened of this passage often aren't. 
And so the message today is to two different crowds. One is to those who are frightened by this passage who should not, and those who are not frightened by it who should be. So what's this passage all about? What's it about? I'm going to emphasize the idea that context is the key. You must take this passage, this teaching of Jesus, in context. Now, not only am I going to to share with you today and, and, and bring some understanding to this unpardonable sin, also wanting to impress upon you that when you read the Bible, you must take it in context. Cults have been established, false religions are established by taking a Bible verse and building a religion, building a doctrine, building a theology on one Bible verse without considering what is said before it and what is said after it. That's what I mean by you've got to take the Bible in context. All right, so with that in mind, let's return back to our account in Mark chapter 3. In verse 7, it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, that's the lake of Galilee, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon. So it says that when the people heard what Jesus was doing, they began to flock to him. Jesus attracted crowds of not hundreds, but thousands of people. They heard that he was giving sight to the blind. They heard that he was giving hearing to the deaf. They heard that he was allowing the paralyzed to walk again. They heard that he was doing amazing things. And so people from all over began to come and flock to him. Now, just so you can get a visual picture of these geographical areas, look at this map. The southern part of that map is Inumia, which in many of your Bible atlases is the land of Edom, where the descendants of Esau settled. And if you go all the way up to the top, to the the orange, the red area, and I know you can't see the cities, the the farthest up city on, on, on the top left is Sidon. So all of this colored area on this map is what is represented in this passage of Scripture of where these people were coming from. So from all over the Middle East, people are flocking by the thousands to get in the presence of Jesus. Mark 3.9, because of the crowd, again, these thousands of people were coming from all over, He told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him. Remember, they're on the Lake of Galilee, in the city of Capernaum, to keep the people from crowding around him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward. It was a mob scene. They were pushing forward just to be able to touch Jesus because they thought, if I can just touch Jesus, I'll be healed. In fact, we remember the story of of the woman who had an issue of blood and she reached out in the crowd and grabbed Jesus' garment and she was healed. And so people, you got to get this in mind, people by the thousands, thousands and thousands were mobbing Jesus. In fact, Mark 3, 11 and 12 says, whenever evil spirits on When those who were possessed with demonic presences, when they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. 
But he gave them strict orders, these demons, not to tell anybody who he was. It wasn't ready to reveal that yet. So day by day now, the evidence is mounting up that Jesus is unlike anyone any of these people had ever heard of or who had ever come across before. And in fact, this same scene played out for three years. People were mobbing Jesus to be healed and to be touched by him. So his works were so many that, you know, we read in the Bible, and we don't understand that they don't even represent a fraction of what Jesus did. In fact, John, one of his original 12 disciples in his gospel, in his manuscript uh, in the New Testament, said this in John 21, 25, Jesus did many other things as well. In fact, he said he did more things than are recorded in the Bible, basically is what he's saying. He says, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that could be written. John said, Jesus did so many things. He performed so many miracles. There are so many amazing stories about Jesus that not a fraction of them have been written down. Now, the only reasonable conclusion that any eyewitness should come to is that Jesus must be the Son of God. No one else could do what he was doing. All the miracles, even raising the dead, turning water to wine, calming a stormy sea. Anyone who was an eyewitness that had to come to the conclusion that Jesus was indeed not just a great religious leader, but the Son of God. But they did not make that connection. As we saw even last week, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 14. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, he's saying, who, who are, what are people saying about me? And as we saw before, some said, well, you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say you're Elijah, come back to life. Or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, they, they said, people are saying you're a really important religious spiritual presence. You're an important prophet of God. Now, think about how many people say the same thing about Jesus even today. You know, there are atheists who don't even believe in God who will say of Jesus, he was a good man. Jesus really taught some important principles. In fact, they'd say, if we would really follow the, the teachings of Jesus, this world would be a better place. I mean, these are atheists who will admit that. C.S. Lewis, famous English writer who wrote the Chronicle of Narnia and, and a lot of those good stories, you know, the witch, the lion, the wardrobe, that, that's him. He wrote these. And as he reflects on the person of Jesus, he said there are only three options that you can come to about who Jesus was. One is that he indeed was God. Two is he was a lunatic. Or three, he was a liar pulling off a very grand scheme of deception. He said, those are the only three conclusions you could make about Jesus. Back to our passage, Mark 3.20. Then Jesus entered a house. And again, the crowd followed him to the house. 
so that his disciples were not even able to eat. There were so many people mobbing them and wanting healed that there wasn't time for them even to sit down and enjoy a short meal, even eat a snack. Mark 3.21, when his family heard about this, when they heard about what a commotion Jesus was making, they went to take charge of him. They went to reel him in. For they said, he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. In fact, see, John, in his gospel, John 7 verse 5, reminds us that Jesus' own family did not believe that he was the Messiah. His own brothers, the Bible gives three names of his brothers, and his sisters, they did not believe that he was the Son of God. They did not believe that he was the Messiah. Now, his mom, Mary, undoubtedly believed it because she had the visitation of, of Gabriel, and, and she knew what Jesus was about. Joseph, his father, knew about it. But there's no account of Joseph anymore in Scripture. So Joseph, by this time, is probably passed. So when his family heard about this, now, here's an important distinction to make here. Don't miss this. When his family, what? Heard about this. Remember, Jesus' family is living in Nazareth. They're living their normal lives out. Undoubtedly, Joseph's sons had picked up the same trade as, as Jesus earlier had practiced, and they were all carpenters. Sisters were probably uh, married and living with their families and raising their kids and that. They're not following Jesus around. They're not part of his inner circle. They're not part of his team of disciples. And remember, Scripture tells us that Jesus never performed miracles in Nazareth because the city would not believe in him. It's of Nazareth that Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, except in his own town, in his own village. So Jesus' family members were operating on hearsay. They were not eyewitnesses to any of Jesus' miracles. Jesus' siblings, think about it now. You know, we, we mystify all this stuff. Jesus' sibling probably always thought Jesus was an odd brother. I mean, he's the older brother. When they were trying to get him to do wrong and get mischief, he would never do it. I mean, we don't know a lot about Jesus' upbringing, but, but you know that he had to be so different than his siblings that they probably always looked at him as an outcast, kind of an outsider. You're strange. Jesus' siblings are probably thinking at this point, now he's gone off the deep end. He's out of his mind. Mark 3.31, then Jesus' mothers and brothers arrived in this scene that we're talking about. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Remember, they came down to take charge of him, to get him out of there. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside. They want to talk to you. They're looking for you. I'm paraphrasing now. Jesus responds this way. Who are my brothers and sisters? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, the people who were his, his inner circle and those who had put their faith in him. And he, he said, here are my mother and brothers. 
And he says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. By the way, what's God's will? John 6 40 tells us, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. That's God's will. And so Jesus is saying, whoever is doing that, whoever is part of that, doing my Father's will, believing on me, that's my brother, that's my sister, that's my mother. In other words, Jesus is saying that mere earthly human relationships are in the past for him. He is about now his father's mission. He is about eternal things. So his family concluded, he's out of his mind. They said, he is gone over the deep end. They kind of embraced C.S. Lewis' second option about who Jesus was, that he was a lunatic. He was odd. He was eccentric. But remember... Jesus' family is operating on hearsay. They're operating on all the stories people are feeding them. They have never been eyewitnesses to any of his miracles. Important to note that. All right, so back to our passage, Mark 3.22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem. Now, now I've got to stop there because we, we this is a really important statement here. All right, so who's here? In, around this house. There's a mob of people, thousands probably, who are wanting to be healed by Jesus, coming from all over the Middle East. Who else is there? Well, some who have already put their faith in him. His disciples are there. Ultimately, his family comes down, but they don't come down to celebrate, and they, they come down to try to get him out of there. And now, the teachers of the law. Now, understand who these folks are. Now, we're talking about the big shots now. We're talking about the religious elite in Israel. They're hearing more and more about this Jesus. They're hearing about his miracles. They've already had several encounters with him personally. So the big shots, the big wheels, the religious leaders, the religious elite, they all come down and gather at that place also. And they say of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. That's their conclusion. They're kind of in that bottom rung, that third choice that C.S. Lewis puts out there. But in fact, as we're going to see, their intent is even more sinister. Their intent is even more evil than that. In fact, if that's just where they were, it was okay. They were okay. They hadn't committed an impartable sin. See, because Luke, in his account, Luke 12, 10, says, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will what, church? Will what? Be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So if if basically their position was that Jesus was a deceiver like many other deceivers who had come up, then actually they, they were still okay. That could be forgiven. They said, by Beelzebub, which had become a term that they understood to be synonymous with Satan. He's Satan. 
He's the prince of all demons. And that's how he's casting these demons out. Because he's Satan himself. So Jesus calls him over. Verse 23. Jesus, guys, come here, come here, come here. He says, come on, guys. He knows what they're saying. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has already come. Biggie say, if Satan, if I were Satan and I'm going around doing all these things to the glory of God the Father, bringing Israel back to God the Father, charging Israel to, to, to repent and, and live the, the righteous life that God has called Israel to live, he says, if I'm Satan doing that, I'm working against myself. He said, what logic are you following? Guys, Satan wouldn't do such a thing. Now he goes on and he ups the ante a little bit more. And he says in verse 27, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can go rob his house. See, Jesus is really being clever here. Jesus says, and in fact, thank you for making my point. Because no one can go into a person's house, a strong person's house and rob him unless first he ties up the strong person. So if I'm able to get into Satan's house, and cast out his demons, and rebuke his demons, then I'm stronger than the strong man who owns the house. And there's only one person stronger than Satan, and that is church, God. Jesus says, thank you very much. Now understand, it's at this point, it's in this context now. You following me? that Jesus makes this declaration of Mark 3, 28 and 29. In response to the religious elite's response towards who he was, and by what power he was doing what he was doing, Jesus says again, I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. He says, I tell you the truth. All, all that can be forgiven. See, the people failed to recognize Jesus as the Son of God out of their ignorance. Jesus' family failed to recognize Jesus as the Son of God out of their ignorance. They were working on hearsay evidence. God can and always will forgive sins of ignorance. God can and always will forgive sins of passion. We lose a loved one and we get angry with God. God, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Jesus, I hate you. You let my loved one die. Jesus, I hate you. I can be forgiven. Jesus can and always will forgive sins of impulse. GD, this, G, JC, this, no, that. Taking his name in vain? That's all right. That can be forgiven. He says, I tell you the truth. 
Whoever sins, blasphemes, all the sins of blasphemes of men will be forgiven. Those kind, they'll be forgiven. But he says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He has committed an eternal sin. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? The religious leaders blaspheming against the Holy Spirit was something more serious and unforgivable. See, that was really going on behind the scenes. It not only reflected their unbelief, their response reflected their determined unbelief. This was not just a matter of, oh, this is, this is crazy, this can't be true. They were determined not to believe. They were making a conscious choice they would not believe. These were the religious elite of Israel. They were not ignorant of what scriptures revealed and taught about Messiah. That was their life, studying the scriptures. The scribes, they wrote down over and over and over again as they rewrote the Bible because there was no printing presses. They wrote it over and over again, the things of who Messiah was. As they heard the teachings of Jesus, as they witnessed his miracles, the Spirit of God had to be bearing witness with their spirits that Jesus was Messiah, that Jesus was the Son of God. They knew it all. They could easily connect the dots. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. They were fully informed. Yet they called him a demon. They called him Beelzebub, Satan himself. Why would they do that? What? If you were at the Good Friday service, I gave you two reasons. One is that Jesus' popularity had outgrown their popularity. And understand that the religious leaders of Israel held a very, very prominent place in society. They were the rock stars. They were the celebrities of their days. Whenever they came around, people gave them homage. Whenever they came around, people went over backwards to take care of their needs. They, they were the rock stars, and now Jesus was superseding their celebrity status. Jesus was superseding their popularity. He had to go. Number two, Jesus was threatening their way of life. They were the leaders. They were the rock stars. They were the religious leaders. They represented God. They were the ones who, who held the hearts and the minds and the souls of the Jews. Jesus was threatened to bring that all that down. That's what led them later in the house of Caiaphas to say, we've got to do something about this. We've got to quit fooling around with this guy. We've got to take care of this guy. We've got to do something to get rid of Jesus. 
they committed the unpardonable sin because they refused to receive Jesus even though they were fully informed. They eternally rejected the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Did they repent after this day and change their minds later? No. They began to meet secretly. And they began to scheme ways that they could, they could turn the crowd on Jesus. In ways that they could raise a charge of blasphemy against him that was worthy of death. And all the while, they were informed. And all the while, undoubtedly, the Spirit of God was bearing witness with their spirit as his appointed leaders of spirituality in Israel. And in fact, as we read the New Testament, we see these little sidebar discussions where they're acknowledging that very thing. But because he's threatening their popularity, because he's threatening their position in society, they don't care. They just want to get rid of Jesus. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an, an eternal sin. The same is true today. For those who eternally refuse the prompting of the Holy Spirit, once they have become fully informed. That's what's called apostasy. Apostasy is never receiving Jesus. Apostasy is always rejecting the promptings of the Holy Spirit that the words of the gospel they've heard are true. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, talks kind of about this issue in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Kind of puts a different light on it. Scripture says in Hebrews 6, verses 4 and 6, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, those who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Now, a lot of Christians get this one confused too. They think, oh, if I walk away from God and walk away from church, I, I can never be. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying the same thing Jesus was saying. It's saying if you have been exposed to biblical truth about who Jesus was and about what he did on the cross. If you, in fact, have tasted the heavenly gift and, and the spirit of God has bared witness with your spirit that, that, that there is hope and, and, and that God loves you through Jesus Christ. 
If, if you have shared in the Holy Spirit, if you have been in a service before and you've heard the gospel, how Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin and how if you put your faith in him, you can have forgiveness and, and you can have the promise of eternal life. If you felt that presence and you sensed that presence before and didn't act on it, tasted the goodness of the word of God, everything God tells us about sin and the forgiveness of sin and the powers of the coming age of what God has laid out for those who will believe. In other words, if you have heard all that, and especially if the Holy Spirit of God has been bearing witness with your spirit that the words you're hearing are true, that's why Paul said in Romans 10, 9, he said, it's right here. It's right on the tip of your tongue, this forgiveness. It's right here. It's right here in your heart, the ability and the knowledge that you know God is speaking to you. It's right there. If they don't embrace that, what the passage is saying, what Jesus was saying, there's no plan B. There's no other way. If you didn't respond to that and you reject that, then you are guilty of a sin against not Jesus. He can forgive that. But against the Holy Spirit's prompting. The same is true today. So allow me to fully inform you now. Jesus said of himself, as recorded in the fourth manuscript of the New Testament, written by John, and the book bears his name, John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Got it? Acts 4.12 declares, salvation is found in, read it with me, no one else. Who? Who? For there is no other name under heaven given to by men by which we must be saved. Romans 10.9 That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Not a good prophet, not a good man, not an important historical figure. If you confess before God that Jesus is Lord, that he really is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And believe in your heart the gospel story that Jesus died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sin, that he was buried and on the third day rose again. If you will believe that and embrace that and put your faith in that, Scripture says you will be saved. You will be pardoned. You will be forgiven. So Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, say that with me, today, say it again. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts 
as you did in the rebellion now. The writer's speaking particularly to Hebrews, to Jewish people. He says, don't, don't you respond the way your forefathers respond. And what God is saying to you today is, don't you respond the way other people have responded. Maybe other family members, maybe friends, maybe colleagues. Don't you respond that way. He says, today, if you hear his voice, don't you harden your heart. So you say, so I haven't committed the unpardonable sin? Not yet. Not yet. Well, how do you know? Because you're still alive. And the unpardonable sin is not a sin of passion. God, I hate you because you took my loved one. God, I hate you because I lost my job. God, it's not a sin of impulse. Jesus, Jesus. All that can be forgiven. What cannot be forgiven, what is an eternal sin, is to have never, over the entire course of your lifetime, trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, because there's no other way. That's it. Hebrews 4, 7 says, Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today. When a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, read it with me, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's say it again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God loves you. He's not done with you. And he hasn't closed the door to your eternal forgiveness, to your eternal pardon. He will never close the door. We close that door, not him. The religious elite of Israel closed that door. They slammed that door in the face of Jesus when they nailed him to the cross. Some of them came to faith. Nicodemus came to faith. But most did not. And because they never changed their mind about Jesus, because they never changed their attitude towards Jesus, they committed an eternal sin that can never be forgiven. Let's bow our heads. How about you? I told you in the beginning that this message was for two different groups of people. The first is for those who have been living in fear of this verse and shouldn't. And that's every one of you here today who have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. I, that doesn't, yeah, you might have done some horrible things. Yeah, you might have acted out in anger towards God. That can all be forgiven. So don't worry about this. Now, the second group of those who maybe aren't worried about it and should be worried about it. Maybe you fall into the group that think that somehow you can live a good enough life that when you get to heaven and die one day, God's going to say, oh, you just come on in. I know you weren't perfect, but you're a pretty good person. No, it's not going to happen. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you're in group number one, and to any degree you've been worried about this and worried about you've gone too far to get forgiveness, I want you right now just to spend some time with the Lord and thank him that that's not true. Thank him that Jesus said that all blasphemies against the Son of Man can be forgiven. Just right now, relax and embrace this and celebrate it in your life. But maybe you're here today and you fall into that second group. You've been fully informed. Now you stand at the crossroads, at least today, of committing the unpardonable sin by rejecting what the Holy Spirit of God right now is impressing on your spirit is true. Now, I don't know if anybody's here who's wrestling with that. And I won't embarrass you in any way, but I, I just want to know if somebody here is, is wrestling with that, that issue. Well, no one's looking around. And I won't embarrass you in any way. Would you slip up your hand and say, yeah, Pete, that's me. I'm wrestling with that issue right now. I'm wrestling with that. From the testimony of hands being raised or not, everyone here has trusted Jesus. I'm so happy that's true, and I pray it is true. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I hope that we have been faithful to your word today as we've presented this message about the unpardonable sin that so many believers just lose sleep over. And there's no reason to because that's not what it's about. Lord, I'm thankful that according to our testimony today here in this service, every one of us have trusted Christ as our Savior. So the unpardonable sin is no longer a possibility in our lives, even if we don't live for you the way we should, even if we ultimately even stop coming to church. It... God, thank you that you've made it that way because of who you are. Lord, I pray that if there is a man or a woman here today who your spirit was dealing with, and for whatever reason did not raise their hand, and I understand that can be very intimidating, so do you. Lord, I pray that they might not leave this place without seeking one of us out to, to get with them one-on-one -on -one and help them understand how they don't have to worry about eternity, about how Jesus has already taken care of that. We thank you for that reality. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.